Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 36 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, weren't we just here? We were just here, but you know, things are starting to heat up. Uh, It's a a busy time in national security law. And I think it's about to get busier, uh, and happily for our listeners, Today, they're not going to have to hear just from us. I, I, I dare say they're going to hear very little from us today. Let's hope um, so. So we're, we're lucky. It's it's uh, it's Thursday, September 14th. Uh, we're actually recording this in the morning around 1040 Central Time. And we're really lucky to be joined by a very special, very honored guest. NSA General Counsel Glenn Gerstel. Glenn, welcome to Austin. Welcome to campus. Thank you. Great to be back. And I heard uh, your last uh, podcast in which you were questioning my wisdom as to whether it was appropriate to show up, and I'm going to reserve Oops. judgment on that till the end of the uh, podcast. That, that will be our last question. Okay. Right. So, so when all is said and done, are you glad you joined us today? Say, <laughs> okay. so Glenn, why are you reaching for the for the recording? Why, what are you doing with that? Why is he running out of our office? The door's over there. Um, hey, it's the NSA, right? They've, they have special powers. That's right. That's right. Uh, we're really excited to have you here. Um, Thank you. We thought that we would uh, primarily be talking about 702 today, which we will. But I think before we get there, we want to talk about you and how you came to be at uh, your current position. And then we can talk a little bit about the, the legal climate within NSA in general. And then we can get specific with 702. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. Great. We will not ask you for your NFL predictions. Right. Well, no, maybe that, at the end, right? No, that's classified. Sorry. That's. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. You know what's going to happen with Ezekiel Elliott? That's what I want to I've been to telling know. you about overclassification. Yeah. Now the proof is out there. Seriously. Okay. Um, so uh, you don't have a prior background as an intelligence community person, yet here you are. How did you get from point A to point B? Well, uh, a lot of serendipity. Um, and I might start off by just simply saying this is. Uh, 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 it's great to be back in Texas here in Austin. You know, I, I was in Texas as a little kid. Uh, we, my parents came here. My jo- dad changed jobs, and we came here when I was, I guess, in about uh, second grade or so. And, of course, I was coming to Texas with a New York accent, which is where, where I'm from. <laughs> so I got immediately teased by all the school kids. Oh, man. New Yorker. Exactly. And about uh, a week or two into the new school, the um, – uh, teacher had an early PTA conference, parent-teacher conference, to uh, tell my mother uh, that I was completely insolent and just didn't respond to her in class at all. And was just, just uh, so my mother immediately talked to me the next day and said, how come you don't respond when the teacher calls? That's not polite, et cetera. And I said, she's never once called on me. Anyway, to make a long story short, it turned out that my teacher, a Mrs. Yelverton in second grade, from West Texas was calling on someone named Glenn in the course. <laughs> and I didn't, I don't know who that was. It certainly That's wasn't awesome. me. And so I wasn't going to respond to that. And so I just sat there silently. And of course, I later realized that was my name <laughs> in West Texas. Uh, That's fantastic. But, and then, of course, I got paid for that because when I went back to the New York, New Jersey area a couple of years later, um, uh, I had a Texas accent and talked about y'all and got teased there. So that was... <laughs> no so were, you, were you fixing to talk to them about some stuff? Exactly. So that led to the emotional scarring, which uh, then, fast forward, uh, led to a legal career for some um, 39 years in the private sector uh, at, a, at a law firm, uh, which was, took me around the world and, and also exposed me uh, in the last several years to uh, working for a number of clients in the telecoms and technology and internet area. 
uh, all of which combined to make me a p possible candidate for this position, uh, but which is not something I was particularly looking for. I was looking to do a public service uh, job at the end of my um, uh, legal career in the private sector and had been looking around uh, for an appropriate position, uh, had not really um, fully appreciated the degree to which uh, I didn't have the relevant experience and that would be an obstacle than for so many of the positions I was looking at. But I got a call from a friend who was then the general counsel of the Department of Defense saying that the, the general counsel position at NSA was going to become open in a, in a few months. And would I be interested? And I didn't really know much about it, but I said, sure, I'll apply, even though I really didn't think I had the qualifications for it and certainly didn't have the deep national security background. But the agency was opening was open to having someone uh, come in from the outside uh, who had uh, experience in managing a, a private law firm, international experience, some background in telecommunications, and uh, as penance for sins in an earlier life, I was ultimately selected for the, for the position. <laughs> um, and it's just been fascinating ever since. That's fantastic. Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom to the idea that you you don't have to be coming from that world in order to be very effective as a general counsel. Obviously, there's a huge managerial aspect to the job that I think those of us who focus only on the like the doctrinal legal debates and the policy debates tend to not pay attention to. But anyone who's in that office for a minute would realize, like any office, it's not going to run well unless it's managed well. Um, how how big is that office? So the office has, in round numbers, about 100 lawyers. We're trying to get a little bit bigger uh, to cope with the uh, demands of serving a, uh, an agency that is, in fact, uh, uh, 40,000 people. So it's, a, it's the largest agency in the intelligence community. Uh, and one of the things that I hadn't appreciated as I came into the job, there were a couple, but one of them that I hadn't really fully appreciated is the range of issues that come across the desk of a general counsel. So we are uh, the the sole provider of legal services for this very large entity, and that ranges from not only the obvious things that you'd expect, which is questions about intelligence law and the extent of surveillance and those things which you would expect the, the legal counsel and the national, of the National Security Agency to deal with, but also quotidian sort of ordinary questions about federal government uh, contract procurement, uh, litigation, the agency subject to, a, like any federal agency, a range of litigation from FOIA requests to ordinary slip and fall kind of quest questions to uh, much more detailed things. And so uh, the, the range of issues that come, come across my desk is just staggering, and it's, uh, it, it's intellectually exhilarating, but it's also uh, pretty daunting. So you had to get up to speed fast on some of the substantive surveillance law and SIGINT law issues. Uh, anything in particular stand out as having been an especially significant challenge, some, some area that was really hard to sink your teeth into? Well, I think the tech, the technical aspects uh, of the job are still something that um, I I continue to to try to address and learn. I think for the first year, uh, speaking candidly, I think it it was uh, an was uphill learning, um, which which I certainly appreciated. I knew and the agency appreciated they were bringing someone in from the outside, and hopefully, the risk reward ratio there was the right one in the sense of the age. I well, it was yet to be determined, but uh, hopefully. Uh, the idea of having someone come in who had law firm management experience and bring to bear the various private sector skills that I could bring uh, would offset the fact that I would have a, a learning curve. And, uh, and, and indeed, I did have a learning curve. I, I've been just uh, really impressed with the 
uh, extent of the, of the technological depth of the agency. It's just extraordinary. Um, but it also is a very complicated place. We've got numerous systems that were computer systems that were put in place uh, sort of after 9-11. There was a great effort to spend a lot of money and a lot of resources in bringing the country up to speed very quickly in being able to fight what was then a clearly a completely changed landscape after 9-11. And as a result, the agency, uh, and like many other parts of the federal government, um, quickly responded to those requirements by putting in place lots of people, lots of computer systems and whatnot that, that didn't all necessarily talk to each other exactly the right way, were set up for different purposes, and all for good reasons and all made sense at the time. But the net result is the place is extremely complicated uh, on a technological sense and, um, and the nature of its mission. So um, consequently, uh, for a lawyer coming in there to, to understand all that um, is, a, is, a, is a challenge. And, you know, it's one that I'm continuing to work on. I think I've made some good progress, but maybe today we'll find out about the extent of that. Sounds like a hard job. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so I guess, you know, one of, the, one of the questions for me, I think, is, you know, as part of that learning curve, right? I mean, when you have a career in private practice, very little, if any of your work is, you know, done in skiffs, um, right? You know, how, how hard has, how jarring has that transition been, right? To have to sort of compartmentalize not just the actual substantive legal questions you're answering, but your work um, and, you know, sort of what can be done where and what, under what circumstances? So the, uh, being from a world where I had not dealt with classified information before, I, ha I had been on a presidential commission before that and had a secret security clearance, but uh, the information I received in that capacity uh, was extremely limited and, and just in a handful of meetings. But working in a nine-to-five job where I was every minute dealing with uh, not only secret but top-secret information, including some of the most sensitive secrets our nation uh, uh, possesses, um, was a completely different challenge. And it affects the ebb and flow of work, which is to say that at the end of the day when I would leave work, um, essentially work would stop. Uh, uh, unlike my old job as a private sector lawyer, I can continue to deal with emails and be on the phone with clients and associates in my former law firm. And now that, that essentially came to a complete halt because uh, you can't communicate, obviously, over uh, ordinary cell phones and ordinary emails, informa uh, classified information. So the good news is sort of on one hand, um, work stops when you walk out of the building. On the other hand, um, uh, when you are out, out, uh, whether it's at a podcast or a public event <laughs> or any other any other place, and you're talking about the activities of the NSA, uh, one has to be extremely careful not to talk about classified information. And so, there's a great tendency to to uh, to be maybe more careful than you should because you don't want to spill classified information. I remember the first uh, few days after I got the job, I came home, and my wife, who was of course used to hearing all the details about my work in a private law firm said, what'd you do today? And I said, well, I went to a meeting and uh, there were some people there. And <laughs> after that, I went to another meeting with some more people. And then I had another meeting with other people. And that was about all I could say. And I'm she getting... probably doesn't ask anymore. So now she doesn't ask anymore and I don't tell her. And uh, that's, that's fine. But um, it is a, it is a, uh, something that everyone who works in the classified environment has to sort of have two sections of their brain, one dealing with classified and one not, and it's it's critical to keep that. Well, so you have this large group of lawyers working for you. You've now been there long enough to really advance up that learning curve. Um, 
the reason there's so much work, so many meetings, is you guys have a lot of legal issues and regulatory issues and a lot of overseers. Can you tell us about, in, in general, what the, uh, the ecosystem is like that you're operating in? Sure. Well, I've already referred to the fact that it's uh, just technologically extraordinarily complicated. Obviously, we're dealing with some of the most advanced uh, aspects of uh, everything from cryptography to encryption to cybersecurity that the federal government deals with. Uh, so that's that's one level of complexity. The other is uh, the, the just the nature of the intelligence community. There are uh, 15, 16 other intelligence community agencies that we coordinate with, along with um, along with uh, other executive departments, uh, as well as the Congress and the judiciary. So if you look at if you sort of take back, step back, and take a look at NSA, and look at the layers of oversight and regulation that we're subject to, um, uh, my my feeling is we are probably the single most regulated entity in the federal government, and and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. I, I mean uh, there's there obviously what we do is very important, uh, and uh, and and potentially intrusive on some people's privacy. Um, and uh, is is something that is is of great concern and focus for for the American public. So it makes sense that we should uh, be subject to lots of layers of oversight and redundant layers of oversight and duplicative layers of oversight. I'm not I'm not complaining about it, but each one of these layers of oversight and uh, reporting. Uh, we are part of the Department of Defense, for example, but we also report to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, as well as, of course, to two congressional committees and other entities within uh, the Department of Justice and other entities within the federal branch. But uh, each one of these uh, overseers has a perfectly appropriate defined role, uh, which makes sense, which made sense at the time it was created and the particular task it was under given was made sense. But you sort of put it all together and it ends up being um, quite extensive, a little bit du duplicative, uh, and probably if you were designing it from a sort of fresh sheet of paper, you wouldn't necessarily come up with this system. I'm not necessarily advocating that we change it, but, <laughs> but, but we are where we are. Uh, but it, but it, is a, it is a complex, uh, complex system, and the Office of General Counsel has to deal with that. So your, uh, your predecessor, Raj Day, um, tells, tells a story, I think, to anyone who will listen about how, I think it was, what, the, uh, the second week he was on the job? Very, yeah. very early, right, yes. in his tenure as, yes. as General Counsel, that we had this known disclosures. I know we're right. going to talk substance a little bit later, but I mean, do you have a sense of how just your job and the job of the general counsel of the agency has changed in the last four plus years, not because of the substance of, of this known disclosures, but just because of the amount of public scrutiny, attention, interest that now follows, you know, what used to be no such agency? Right. Uh, yeah, so it's obviously clearly changed. Uh, no, no one would uh, would dispute that. Um, when I came into uh, when I started the position in August of 2015, uh, Congress had just uh, weeks before uh, adopted the uh, USA Freedom Act, which ended the old so-called bulk collection under Section 215, and the agency was under a very tight deadline by November of, of that year to implement the new Freedom Act. So I was immediately plunged into a technologically complicated uh, issue that had attracted great public attention, and we were under uh, under the microscope, so to speak, to, to make sure we performed and ended, ended the old program and put in the new program in place. Uh, with all the extra safeguards. 
Um, and so there's just a, a heightened public interest and heightened public scrutiny, which I welcome. Uh, we've, we've responded to that in, in a bunch of ways that years ago would have been inconceivable. We have transparency reports. We have detailed declassification uh, requirements. So there's a website that all your um, viewers, or all of your listeners should look at, which is IC on the Record, uh, which is on Tumblr, which is, uh, is a repository of I don't even know how many thousands of pages of, of documents, which, again, years ago would not have been made public, uh, but are all part of an overall effort uh, to try to make sure that the public has an understanding of what we do. And the more they understand what we do, they'll have more trust in, in what we're doing to keep the nation safe. And that's something that's vitally important to the job. So I think a lot of listeners will understand that the, the range of collection activities that uh, NSA engages in take place under distinct legal headings and, and to sort of sweep very generally there's sort of the traditional FISA Title I heading where there's a very specific target, it's inside the United States, or there's there's one of the various statutory factors that requires you to go to the FISA court in advance in most cases to uh, get specific uh, FISA court approval to collect on that particular target. There are situations that are the mirror image, the opposite extreme, where it's entirely overseas, uh, there's no U.S. element to the collection, um, and this is often referred to as 12333 collection. Uh, and then you have these sort of in, the in-between scenarios, um, and the in-between scenarios where there's there's a element of involvement, particularly where um, either it's necessary or at least helpful to involve a U.S. company that controls either... Um, an email service or other uh, communication service where the target is a, is a client of that company, has an account with that email provider, for example, and therefore that makes the provider of that email account an entity with in, a, in an excellent position to help. And sometimes that's an American company that could either be, you know, could be compelled or asked to assist. And, and then by extension, there's also, there are American companies that uh, have control over various parts of the internet backbone, just the vast sea of information, bits and bytes flowing through the pipes. They also are in a, in a position to help uh, look through their own uh, equipment, looking at the passage of information. And we have, over the years of the post-9-11 period, developed the what is now generally referred to as Section 702 as a, uh, as a system of in, engaging with those companies. It's a complex beast. It's at the center of political attention for NSA this season because it's, uh, the current legislation will be uh, it'll sunset on December 31st, if not renewed. So it's got a, a few months left of life, if not renewed. It's a big deal. So I think the best way to dive into it might be to start with a description of a much more precise description than I just gave of when exactly is it that we are talking about 702 as the relevant basis for collection. Then we can talk about, okay, so what are the stages and how you go about engaging in 702 collection, and then last we can come around to what are the points of criticism and, uh, and possible reform. Sure. So you're referring, of course, to Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, it's a statute that's been in place in this form for just about a decade. It was adopted in 2008. It had a provision that uh, uh, caused it to be renewed uh, by, it was originally proposed in the Bush administration, and then the Obama administration in 2012 uh, extended it again uh, without change uh, to December 31st of this year. So it's it's up for renewal. If uh, it's, it's probably the single, I would say it's probably the single most important sort of operational statute that we have. 
Uh, the, the other um, important basis for our authority is uh, an executive order, which addresses, as, as you've said, um, our operations, uh, all of our operations, but in particular focus, gives us authority to undertake uh, operations overseas. Um, but within the United States, uh, we need special statutory authority and, um, and uh, to, to undertake collection activities, again, aimed at foreigners. The, this is not... Uh, we're not engaged in uh, domestic surveillance at all, but but nonetheless, for reasons I'll explain in a second, uh, we do need this authority, and that's and that's in as I said in, in section 702 of of the uh, of the FISA Amendments Act. Um, Congress is considering uh, right now, as we speak, uh, whether to extend the statute, and if so, on on what terms. Whether it's a clean reauthorization, so to speak, without a sunset provision, which is very much what the administration has asked for and what the intelligence community has asked for, or whether um, some members of Congress would like to see amendments. So maybe um, just to get into it, uh, it would be useful to, to sort of talk about the history of it and, and how we got to this point, and then see, see what, exactly what the statute allows us to do. So uh, the, the FISA itself was adopted in, what, 78, 78. sort of growing out of the uh, church pike hearings and looking at, uh, uh, at some of the abuses that had earlier occurred in the, in, in the intelligence and surveillance area. And so this statute was put in place um, to basically to require, um, in compliance with the Fourth Amendment, uh, a, a probable cause uh, system where... Uh, it was necessary for the FBI or, this, or the uh, NSA to, if we thought there was a, uh, something relevant to our foreign intelligence mission, to get a probable cause uh, warrant that someone was acting on behalf of a foreign power. And uh, that made sense at a time when, when most of the surveillance that we were doing um, back in those days, say, of, a, of an international of a phone call or so, was was involved in satellites or or something else where we where we were, weren't needing to uh, to get that kind of court of authorization, but as technology changed and emails be and became uh, more ubiquitous and cellular telephones became uh, the preferred means of communication, we were finding that we were in an anomalous situation where in order to go after a say a foreign terrorist um, who just uh, happened to be using uh, an American uh, email system, uh, we were in a situation where in order to go after the, the foreign person who, who would not enjoy Fourth Amendment rights, uh, we were needing to, to undertake the same kind of uh, probable cause uh, search warrants that we were having to do, with, which the FBI say would have to do for an American. And that sort of turned things on its head, where we were giving foreigners more protection or equal protection to what we were doing for Americans. That, that, didn't, that didn't make sense and was cumbersome and was giving foreigners, uh, foreign terrorists and other targets uh, some benefits that didn't make sense. So the statute was changed to allow a different scheme. I can describe it in greater detail if you, if you want, but to allow a different scheme where um, uh, NSA and the F FBI and the CIA are given the authority, the statutory authority, uh, to target um, foreigners located overseas for foreign intelligence purposes and to undertake surveillance on them. It is not a domestic surveillance program at all. It's not even a program at all. It's just an authority. It's a statutory authority. Is it fair to say, just a point of clarification, that, of course, under 12333, it was already clear you could target a foreigner located overseas. The, the particular utility of 702 is 
when you when you want you want is to go to an AT and T or Verizon or fill in the blank some company that's in the U S and compel them to assist you in accessing their account or or scanning for their information on the internet backbone. This, if without seven or two, you got to go through the individualized FISA probable exactly. cause process. Exactly. So we'd have to go through that. As I said, that we'd have to go back to, back to that. Uh, pre-2008 arrangement where we would have to get a, in effect, a probable cause as search if, warrant. As if it was a U.S. person as if it was or a US someone person. in the U.S. And, and therefore, we were given the, the, the foreign terrorist uh, some some benefits that, that just were not appropriate. So the reason we need the statute is we need an authority to compel a U.S. service provider uh, to provide the information for, for foreign intelligence purposes. And uh, without, without that statute, we don't have the authority. And, and in a way, this sort of reflects well on American technology, which is to say foreigners are using American technology. They're, they're using American internet and telephone arrangements and communications providers. Uh, uh, and, and so that fact means that in order to obtain the collection, we can either obtain the collection overseas, um, in which case we're not dealing with Fourth Amendment issues, or if we're trying to compel a U.S. service provider to provide us this information about foreigners located overseas, we need some legal mechanism, and 702 provides that legal mechanism. Great. Okay. So there, the stages, once 702 is in place, there's effectively a once-a-year process of persuading the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that the system's in place to make sure that this authority is only being used genuinely in good faith for foreign targets outside the United States for foreign intelligence purposes, mm -hmm. that there's a, a set of systems adopted by NSI, NSA that look like they're going to pass muster, right? So the court um, reviews all this. And if it finds that the system is good enough and also that it has proper minimization procedures on the back end, it effectively gives a one-year blessing and says, all right, you now, your 702 authority has been activated. You may, for this year, for this time, you may go to the providers and you can go to them to target specific selectors or, you know, uh, email addresses, phone numbers, et cetera. Is that a fair description? Yes, it is. Um, I should take a step back even before that, which is to say that um, this entire uh, uh, approach starts with a, a series of complex determinations through the intelligence community and the executive branch of exactly what kind of foreign intelligence we're looking for. Uh, so there's a, there's a process by which, uh, from the president on down, a determination is made as to what uh, foreign intelligence we are seeking, say, whether it's information or just, for example, on North Korea, whatever. Uh, and that results in something called the National Intelligence Priorities Framework, which in turn is uh, translated into um, uh, a certification that is requested, as you said, annually. We go to the, the FISA court, uh, both the attorney general and the uh, director of national intelligence go and say, these are the areas where you'd like to be certified to undertake these, this, this type of uh, electronic surveillance. Um, and uh, the, the FISA court reviews that, uh, as well as a set of procedures that you referred to, and there are two types of procedures, uh, and, and gives a, a one-year approval for us to do that. The two types of procedures are one set of procedures dealing with targeting, the kind of person we can go after and under what circumstance and who has to approve it. Um, and again, as I said, it's foreigners located overseas, and there's a series of procedures as to how we determine that. And then secondly, uh, a series of provisions called minimization procedures, 
which have to do with the fact that, as Congress well understood, um, when we are looking at a foreigner located overseas, it's entirely possible, since we're collecting against the foreigner, that um, he or she may have been in communication with an American, and that's incidental communication. We're not looking for that. We're not targeting it, but there could be a communication with an American. And to deal with that issue, to deal with the American's communication, we have a set of minimization procedures where we try to minimize the impact on the U.S. person's privacy. Those three things, namely the certification, the targeting procedures, and the minimization procedures are all approved on an annual basis for the court, and then it's turned over to execution for the either the FBI or the NSA or the CIA. So uh, thinking about where the criticisms enter into the picture, there is a, a school of thought, a school of criticism that enters the picture at this point. And I think this is not the center of gravity. This is not what's driving the upcoming congressional mm-hmm. debate. But there is a view out there that says, you know, it, at least, it, maybe always, but at least if you're involving American-based companies with compulsory power, nope, you should have to get a probable cause on an individual basis every single time. Um, Steve, do you have a sense of whether there's, do you think that's a widespread view? I mean, I, I don't buy into that view myself, and, and I don't have the sense that it's actually a major part of the opposition to 702 renewal. I think, I, so I think there are two levels to this to this opposition. I think there are some folks, um, you know, those who I think have problems with the extent to which our constitutional framework already draws such a bright line between U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons in this context, who do think that the involvement of a U.S. company ought to be a trigger, that it ought to be sort of more classically like what we call classic FISA, Title I of FISA in all contexts. I think there's a more nuanced position, um, and, and I may very well be a holder of said more nuanced position, um, that it's not about probable cause on the front end, but that the minimization requirements, right, that, that once you know for a fact, as I think we do, right, I mean, I think it's public, that U.S. person information is in fact collected, sure. right, through 702, incidentally to the sort of targeting, um, that perhaps there ought to be more stringent limitations on what the government should have to show before they can do anything with that data other than segregate it and put it away in a locked drawer. So I think that's consistent with what I was just suggesting, which is if you look at this as sort of a set of questions about the front end pre-collection and then the back end post-collection, the center of gravity and the the serious debates about the back end here, not that there's no one criticizing the front end process, saying that it should be individualized and probable cause in every instance, but I just don't see that having much momentum and certainly not much prospect. Because my sense, and and I, of the the three people in this room, I probably have the least technical sophistication, but my sense is that there's at least tacit acceptance that existing technological capabilities would not allow for the kind of micro-segregation on the collection end, right? That that when you're picking up a multi-communications transaction, right, you can't segregate it at the point of collection. You have to collect it before you can segregate it. So this leads us naturally to talk about the, the areas that are more sensitive. And Glenn, you mentioned the minimization procedures. Um, Let's before we get into the the critiques and responses and possible changes that can be made. Let's talk about what actually happens with respect to how the fruits of 702 collection uh, get queried, get used. And, and in particular, we should emphasize which institutions other than NSA ever have access to that information, and for what you know, what are the rules and practices regarding who can query and for what purpose, and especially where does U.S. person query uh, querying with a U.S. person's identifier enter into the picture. Right. 
So um, as in so many uh, aspects of this, it's, uh, it's a little complicated. Let me try to uh, unpack it and, and simplify some of it. So first of all, we should talk about the two kinds of collection we do under 702, which is so-called upstream and downstream. And you'll hear those words a lot. So uh, the downstream is sort of easier to understand. It involves, um, uh, let's say, the NSA going to a telecommunications service provider in the United States, which is, again, why we're involved in in this statute, using the statutory authority in the first place, and compelling them by serving them with a directive to say, uh, please give us a copy of, let's just say, emails uh, for a particular selector, a particular email address, in other words, essentially an, an account. And um, uh, we could do that uh, for, um, as I said, for a particular selector, again, of a foreigner. This is a foreigner located overseas. And so we could get, we could in effect get, get those emails. Um, uh, in addition, we also look at something called upstream, which involves not necessarily going to that same telecommunications service provider, but uh, someone, uh, a communications provider that deals with the internet backbone at certain parts in the United States. And this is just a function of the fact that international communications, even though they may be purely uh, between two foreign points, might well transit through the United States just due to the nature of technology and the, and mm -hmm. the way uh, internet communications are rooted. And so we have a, 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 a internet communications provider located in the United States, part of someone who manages the backbone. And we could present, again, the same technical selectors. This is not mass, mass or bulk surveillance center. We're going very, very specifically naming the specific email of the, of the foreign person located overseas, giving that to the provider and saying, please scan uh, the, this, this backbone for that, and we'll, we'll get back that result. Um, uh, so um, that uh, upstream traffic is sent to the NSA. It is not sent to the CIA or the FBI. Um, and there are restrictions over uh, part of the minimization procedures on how we can do queries of the resulting data. And um, that's part of what the attention has been f focused on. Uh, uh, as it now stands under current rules, NSA is allowed to use the name of a U.S. person uh, to query the data. And let's be clear, when we're querying the data, we're, there, there's no Fourth Amendment implication. This is not a new search. We're not acquiring any information. It's taking existing information we already have, which we're allowed to look at. We could clearly look at it individually. And instead of, instead of uh, uh, looking at each piece of of email individually, we're, we're typing the term in effect to a computer. Just the same way, for example, if you have an inbox uh, on, your, on your computer of your emails and you want to quickly search for your email from someone, you type in the person's name and get the email back. Now, this is where, yeah, right. Steve, this is where your concern is. Right. So, so, so you say there's no Fourth Amendment implication. I guess I, guess I want to push back on that a little. Um, current doctrine Mm -hmm. right, suggests that it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. I guess what I'm trying to push back on is there's some suggestion in the case law that not all incidental collection is free from Fourth Amendment strictures, right? That, that so I think what Judge Sand, um, right, in his uh, district court opinion in the Bin Laden case in 2000, suggested that when the government knows that it's going to be collecting substantial amounts of incidental information, um, that actually doesn't have the, that might raise Fourth Amendment concerns that purely accidental 
incidental collection might not raise, such that it actually might not be the same as just, you know, stuff that was already properly collected. Steve, do you think like, that it enters into the picture? So basically what the question is, is are we going to see some doctrinal innovation in the Fourth Amendment space? I mean, we haven't yet. Right. So, so no the, no court has, has found that there right. is a Fourth I, I, Amendment no, issue. That's so right. This so, is about what could be. I, I, I was just pushing back on the session that there's no Fourth Amendment implication whatsoever. I think there are some folks who would say, not there isn't one yet, but that we actually, this is sort of untested because there, we've there, never right. had a merits determination, right, about the sort of full there scope of There certainly are those who are arguing that it should become protected, that, that somehow the post-collection search using U.S. persons will become an actionable event. And I wonder if uh, those who advance that view um, are taking some comfort from ideas sort of implied in U.S. v. Jones, yeah. where this idea that, well, you wouldn't say that as a general rule for all government information, but where there's sort of like a broad scale of collection over time. Um, or Riley. I mean, right, or the or the Chief right. Justice's discussion in Riley of sort of how digital information creates privacy complications that might not have resulted from the same analog. I think a lot of times in debating this, what a lot of people like to call the backdoor search yep. question, which is a little bit pejorative, but um, nonetheless. I did not use that term. I, I, know, I, I, I threw it out there just because that, that, you know, it's like drone. That's like the word a lot of people use to capture the debate. Or, it, or this podcast. Well, it, <laughs> droning on. It is, a, uh, it is an area where people tend to argue past one another because they don't share the initial premise about whether or not under existing law the Fourth Amendment protects or attaches in this circumstance. As Glenn said, you know, the, the current law, as, as I read it, and I think as Glenn reads it, and I think you also, um, that's not a Fourth Amendment actionable event. There's not a reasonable expectation of privacy that sort of newly emerges because you've chosen a particular search term going through existing data. But there are those who think, you know, we ought to, the law ought to evolve in that direction. Well, and, and, indeed, and, and there may be disagreement over just whether the law has conclusively said there isn't on those facts or whether it's just unsettled, right? Right. Now, a critical point is that since what we're heading towards is a statutory renewal or a statutory reform moment, uh, it's it's obviously important to talk about whether the Fourth Amendment attaches, but one who wants it to attach can just as well say, well, perhaps it doesn't. I would like Congress to right. create rules that map onto that. And I think that's sort of where the debate's heading. Never mind the Fourth Amendment, should Congress create any kind of constraint either on which institutions can do searches that use U.S. person names or maybe ban U.S. person searches outright or maybe simply subject the use of U.S. person selectors in these queries um, to more transparency and reporting so that we can develop more information over time about what, what the actual practices are. So this is an issue that is probably uh, more more one for the FBI than for uh, NSA. Um, and, the, and the FBI has, has spoken out on this, uh, both in, uh, at congressional hearings and elsewhere. Um, you know, after after 9-11, uh, every, we've had a series of commissions, uh, both the 9-11 Commission itself, the Fort Hood Commission, other, after every, almost every one of these terrorist incidents. And uh, one unifying thread of all these reports is that it's just critically important for the nation's national uh, security uh, agencies to share information and to try to get actionable, quick information available in the hands of, of both law enforcement and national security officials to, to, to help keep the nation safe. Simple as that. Um, so if uh, we were to introduce, as some have talked, uh, which is what Bobby and Steve, you were leading up to, some heightened requirements that before you can go query this uh, database of admittedly lawfully collected information, that's not in dispute, uh, that just the sheer act of querying it uh, triggers some maybe Fourth Amendment questions or maybe some extra policy issues. Um, what what additional 
uh, requirements do we want to put on in there? Right, right now, we would argue the system with its robust privacy protections already is quite adequate. Uh, but there are others who say, no, we need some additional uh, restrictions. Um, so I think the, the, it's just an operational question of how much, how much do we, what kind of impediments do we want to put in, in the way uh, in the name of privacy and what, are, what benefits are we truly getting? What benefits are we truly getting relative to the costs in operational efficiency and, efficiency, uh, and, and safety? So if there's a terrorist incident uh, and we need to, we the intelligence community need to, or the law enforcement needs to quickly find out who else is connected to this terrorist, are they planning anything else? Um, or other or other 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 cities or places or venues uh, at risk. Um, do we really want to have a system where we place uh, lots of additional restrictions that are time consuming? Uh, the FBI will make the point, for example, that they don't have probable cause in many case in many cases. Uh, they got a tip or a lead, and sometimes just a tip or a lead, which doesn't amount to official probable cause, um, is is a basis for querying a a lawfully collected database. If they had to go get a search warrant every time and go to a federal magistrate and spend several days doing this, well, that's, boy, our foreign adversaries and terrorists would, would laugh at us if we had that system. I'm not sure the suggestion is that, a, is that you need a search warrant specifically, but that at the very least the agency has to have probable cause even as determined by it, right? That is to say, I mean, you, we have examples in existing legal frameworks where the probable cause determination is made just by the officer. Right, without going through the judicial process. If, if it's calibrated at probable cause, then as Glenn says, then you, by a, definition, a tip, you can't use it with tips and leads. You're not going to no, use I it with tips and leads. I and, I, and, I, and again, I'll let my friends at the FBI address it because it's more, more of a law enforcement issue. But I would simply say that uh, I, 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 my personal view is that, is that that probable cause standard would, would be difficult to be met and would, is not what the nation needs to keep itself safe. So, so can I, let me just ask, let, let me sort of pivot a bit, because I think, I think this maybe dovetails with this topic, which is the question of sort of compliance enforcement, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so one of the things that I get especially exercised about, um, and I suspect as general counsel, you probably can't say this, but you, a, a hypothetical general counsel might also get exercised about, um, is compliance incidents, right? right? Where it's actually not a conscious policy that's leading to the legal conflict, right, right. but rather um, violations even of the internal procedures and protocols. Um, it seems to me that one of the most important things we've learned over the past four years as the public um, is about particular high-profile compliance incidents, but also that there are a lot of compliance incidents. Um, do you think that has any bearing on the public debate over 702 reform, that that the volume and or nature of some of the documented compliance incidents suggests that there might be reasons for skeptics to not trust right, the existing internal protocols and procedures and to actually want Congress to legislate more process despite the costs you've just outlined. So uh, when we talk about compliance incidents, let, let's make sure we've, we've got the right perspective uh, and right lens uh, through which to view this. So uh, first of all, um, we have a robust program uh, to self-report any, any, uh, any errors, any failures. Um, and I want to be clear that every single report that's been done in this area, whether it's the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, a completely independent, congressionally appointed agency, or uh, units within the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Justice, who oversee rigorously NSA's activities, not one of them has found any, any 
question any single instance of intentional or willful violation of procedures. So that's that's number one. Number two, the PCLOB, as I said, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, specifically commented on the fact that there was a robust uh, uh, oversight uh, regime, both within the agency and, um, and, and outside. Any compliance program that doesn't discover errors <laughs> is not a compliance program. <laughs> I mean, we've got 40,000 people, and as I said earlier in this podcast, an incredibly ser- complex series of technical systems. Um, all it takes is for an analyst to be, to transpose a digit on something as to whether they think they're going after a particular email or phone number, and they accidentally type in the wrong one. We're all humans. People make mistakes. So if you look at the kinds of mistakes, and we report that kind of as a compliance incident. So, so uh, or we will discover that a piece of technical equipment fails uh, just due to a technological error. And how many of us have ever had a computer that didn't work properly or added some technical error? And we'll discover that uh, even though it was our best intention, we failed to notice that one of our foreign targets had come to the United States and we were continuing accidentally, inadvertently, non-intentionally to collect on them for a day or two before the technical fix was discovered. So we've got a wide possibility of human errors, technical errors, whatever, that lead to compliance in- incidents. We self-report these. It is true that that uh, the, the volume of them is not trivial. It's not, a, it's not an insignificant number. It, I don't think it's a very significant number because we, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember offhand, but the, the percentage of incidents, um, of compliance incidents, of if you look at the, the transactions and the, the surveillance we're taking, is way less than 1% of an error rate. Uh, a friend of mine was saying that, uh, that there, there's, a, there's a greater likelihood that under FDA, approval, uh, FDA approved rules, you'll find uh, insect parts in, in peanut butter than there is in, uh, in, uh, in the fact of our having a you know, statistical there's likelihood a of a compliance <laughs> incident. So, um, uh, so it, it's, a very, it's a very high compliance rate, but there are some errors, and we self-report them. We report them to Congress, et cetera. And I think the fact that we report them, I would hope, gives the uh, public confidence that we are taking this seriously, that the overseers are doing their job. And if we didn't have any, uh, then people would be saying we're, we're, we're not being transparent and we are being fully transparent. So I think the fact that we rigorously comply with the law, there's been no finding whatsoever of any willful violation ever by anybody is a very powerful statement. So I want to pivot to questions surrounding unmasking, which are going to loom large in the... Speak of allegations of willful right, violations. Exactly. But before I do that, I actually want to go back for one last follow-up on the, uh, the, the backdoor questions. Uh, it really does tend to focus in on what activities we want the FBI to be able to engage in in, in querying these databases. Um, can you shed some light on whether there currently are any subject matter or topical constraints such as, you know, obviously the case for FBI access is strongest in the counterterrorism context. Um, FBI obviously has a, a million other law enforcement and indeed domestic intelligence related uh, duties to uh, investigate and collect information. Um, as things currently stand, can they query for a, a wide range of purposes, a limited range of purposes? Um, is that, and, and is that a variable that you think is, is significant? So um, uh, again, just to put it in context, so the FBI um, when we're talking about it, these discussions about the FBI querying its databases, let's make sure we understand that they're only querying a 
uh, subset of the 702 collection. The, the FBI, for this purpose, does not get um, all of the 702 collection against our, what we've said publicly, is about 106,000 targets. So we've got about 100. So we're, we're talking about a very small percent, a microscopic percentage of the world's population, 106,000 targets. Um, and uh, no American's communication is going to be ever, ever subject uh, to 702 collection unless you're in communication with one of our 106,000 targets. So, so if you just think about it, uh, what are the odds that the average American deals with emails overseas in the first place, let alone with our 106,000 targets? So we're talking something about – and then of that – well, yeah, sure. on that one just of a little bit. So yeah. that makes a ton of sense as to to-from-based collection. Right. There is the about collection category, which, which we should we're not, throw into the complexity. Well, we're not doing abouts, and so I don't, we, we've right. stopped that. So uh, previously that had been an area of, of sensitivity, but— That, that had been, uh, but it isn't now. So right now under current rules, uh, which is what Congress is looking at, uh, under current rules, um, your communications cannot be uh, uh, addressed under the 702 authorities unless you're in communication, unless you're in communication with one of our 106 thousand targets. So that's, a, that's already a small number. Now, of that, um, the FBI only gets, for its databases, uh, those um, names that are relevant to their ongoing investigations. So it's a much smaller subset of what is already a smaller subset. So when we're talking about querying the database, the FBI querying the database, it's querying a database of people who are part of their uh, investigative interest of this already small subset of information. So let's make sure we, we uh, dispel some of these myths about the vast volume, et cetera, that people like to talk about. That is just utterly untrue. So they're going to slice of a slice of a slice. Exactly. Once exactly. they've got that, could they run a sort of a narcotics so they, they, related? They, they or... are, they, the FBI is allowed, pursuant to their investigative rules, and I'll have to let them speak for themselves, but my understanding is that they're allowed to uh, 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 query for any any for any, for any any appropriate law enforcement yeah. purposes, um, in the case of in the case of the NSA, uh, we are allowed to query again this lawfully collected database only if we have a valid foreign intelligence purpose for looking at that at that particular name. Do they so keep logs of that? We keep detailed logs yeah. of all that and all and before you even make that request, it has to be approved internally and we record it. And we know who made the request and for what purpose. That's all documented. And I'm not aware of and of course I'm not in a great position to know, but I'm not aware of any stories come to light that Lo and behold, somebody was uh, accessing this for improper purposes or do anything untoward. As I've said, um, study after study has looked at uh, our operations in the FBI's and others and had not found a single instance, not found a single instance of any willful or intentional violation of these very detailed and robust procedures. Uh, you want to talk about unmasking, and then I have sort of a general question that I think might be a good place. Yeah, to, let's to make sure we down. let's make sure we uh, talk about the un- so obviously unmasking has become almost this uh, sort of this political icon. Right? Yeah, I mean, shouldn't Susan Rice be in jail by now? Oh, Steve, you and your your constant uh, focus on this issue. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if you could give us just a sense of like so in general, because unmasking, I guess, is obviously not just a seven hundred two issue, but seven hundred two is the focal point. But in general, how does the unmask? How does the masking? And then the potential unmasking process actually work. Okay, so let's yeah let's let's explain what unmasking is first of all. So when when NSA uh, uh, pursuant to whether it's uh, whether it's our authorities that we just described under seven hundred two or under this executive order twelve triple three whatever when we have lawfully collected information, um, 
the vast bulk of it, uh, as we've said, is because of who we are, we're focusing on foreigners. So the vast bulk of it has nothing to do with Americans. Um, but on occasion, we will come across uh, either an American's communication or an, an American referenced in, in, in the information we're looking at. Um, if, if it has no foreign intelligence information, we're destroying, we're destroying that piece of information, whether it's an email, a phone call, whatever. If it does have bona fide foreign intelligence information, um, then it might be something we, we retain and report on. So if we were going to report on it and send out an official report to the president and other executive agencies, et cetera, um, we're going to uh, put the name of the American only if there's a bona fide foreign intelligence reason and, and putting the name of the American in would be relevant to the report. If it's just irrelevant, we're not going to list it. So if it's relevant, we'll then put the name in. But we then go a further step, which is we don't put the actual name in. We won't put the name of Glenn Gerstel or Bobby Chesney or whatever. We'll instead say U.S. person number one was in contact with foreign terrorists named so-and-so. And we'll distribute the report that way. It'll literally say U.S. person number one. When uh, the FBI gets that report, to take a hypothetical example, uh, and they see that U.S. person one was in touch with foreign terrorists, they'll, they may come back to us and say, please unmask, meaning tell us who, the, who that U.S. person is. And that's the process. When we do that, we record who was making the request. We say to them, you can only make that request if it's relevant to your job and you have a position that's relevant to this inquiry. We will record it and we will release the name to just you, not to everybody else who got the report, by the way, um, and we'll release the name for bona fide purposes. And another example of where it's totally appropriate is we'll find that um, through our signals intelligence information, we'll come across a, uh, a cyber attack on a company. And, and that report might be given, say, to the Department of Homeland Security. And they'll say, we would like to notify the company and tell them that they've been hit and they should check, nice their, of them. check their computers and tell us who this is. What is U.S. We're, company we're number one? We're looking at And tell us the name of U.S. company number one. And so we'll, uh, we'll, as I said, unmask that all pursuant to these procedures. Okay. But I might add the, this requirement is not something that is required by the Fourth Amendment. We could if we had the procedures legally list the U.S. person's name, there's nothing, there's, it's not a constitutional issue. We do this out of an, an abundance of caution in an effort to give extra privacy protection and put the burden on the recipient to come back and, in appropriate cases, ask for the name of the person. Steve? So, I, I mean, I, we're, we're getting a little short on time. I know there's so much more we could talk about. I have sort of a big picture question about 702 reform, which is, um, you know, the Justice Department, I think, sent a letter last week um, to the relevant members of, of the intelligence committees, and I think also the judiciary committees, um, basically suggesting that what the executive branch is asking for is not just a clean reauthorization of 702, but a permanent one. Um, and I guess my, my question is, why is it so important that it be permanent? I mean, it seems to me that there is something very healthy, especially about um, an authority that is as important, but also at least in some circles as controversial as this one, in asking Congress to have to reassess matters on a regular basis, just look at how much more we know today. Um, not all of it bad, indeed, as you know, per the constitutional conversation, much of it actually, I think, to the, you know, that redounds to the sort of benefit of our understanding of, of the programs. Um, since the last time it was reauthorized in, in 2012, right? I mean, this is, you know, the last reauthorization of 702 was, was BS, before Snowden. Um, 
why not why why not why not be perfectly content with another five year reauthorization? So um, we're seeking a permanent uh, reauthorization of this very important statute. Congress always has the right at any time to come in uh, because of the detailed reports that we give to Congress. There are semi-annual reports that are given on this program to, to Congress. Congress has the right at any time to come back and say we want to change something, we want to respond to uh, to any particular new information. Uh, uh, so there's, there's always the right on the part of Congress to, in effect, implement a sunset by just changing it. And, and that, I, that, I, that, that requires, I mean, that requires the acquiescence of the president or a veto-proof supermajority of both houses. Well, yes, but, but you know, uh, I don't know why we would send a message to our foreign adversaries that we've got this uh, vital national security program in effect for just a few years, and we're not really certain about it, and we want to take another look at it. I don't know why we would send that message. No other country does that. Uh, if we look at other comparable democracies in Western Europe, they don't even— they don't have anywhere even approaching these kinds of safeguards, and I, I don't. I don't know why we would send that message. This is this is a do, program. Do you, do you think that the existing statute sends that message? I, I don't think it it sends that message, but I think uh, some of the debate we're having uh, in public and Congress, I, I think, um, you know, is is going to is going to cause some people overseas to to take a look at what we're doing. Um, and I I, I don't I, I think. From a technological point of view, we should we should know uh, that we're, we've got this important uh, statutory tool, uh, and if Congress, with full oversight, and if Congress needs to change it at any point, um, they they certainly can and should. That's that's their duty. I think that's a pretty good place to end. Obviously, we could go on forever, but forever. But we actually have to get you downstairs to, get okay. to talk to our students, which we're so pleased you're going to do. Who will probably ask much better questions than I did. I, you know, likewise. Uh, Glenn, thanks for being on the program. We really appreciate it. Thank you. No, this has been great. Really appreciate it, too. Well, great. So, uh, dear listeners, we're going to cut it off there. We'll be back with you next week for episode 37. 37. Um, but for now, have a good weekend. Stay safe out there. Adios.